What's up, my dudes, and welcome to every A24 movie on Blu-ray. I'm Steven. I'm here, as always, with my co-hosts, Chris. Hi. And Patrick. Hello. Surprise. Yeah, doing something a little different this week and for the foreseeable future in solidarity with uh, the WGA and SAG. We are not watching The Thing this week, as we promised. You thought it was going to be The Thing, but surprise, it's something else. Isn't that appropriate? (laughs) Indeed. Yeah, we are here this week to watch the A24 film that is only marginally horror and isn't available on Netflix, Ari Aster's third feature I was afraid. Chris, how did we get here? Well, yeah, you know, as as I'm sure most of our listeners are aware, there's been Hollywood strikes going on. We had the WGA go on strike, uh, SAG after joined them afterwards, and uh, Hollywood shut down. And at the center of the issues um, of negotiation are streaming uh, providers and the benefits that they're giving or not giving to the people who make their content. And Netflix especially has been in the crosshairs of the strike. So as the strike continues and escalates, uh, we've been trying to figure out how we can support them and show solidarity with them. And for various reasons and some soul searching, it it no longer felt appropriate to uh, continue actively promoting Netflix as a streamer as it is. And so uh, instead of, you know, suspending the show, we figured, well, we could uh, pivot hard to the A24 catalog because A24 has been, uh, not targeted by the strike, at least the SAG after strike, because they have been, uh, they're an independent studio that's not part of mm-hmm. the um, producer association that is uh, being negotiated with. And they uh, have apparently acquiesced to what the uh, union has been asking for. So no more Netflix. We're done with Netflix. We're watching only A24 horror movies. And. Not on streaming. <laughs> so that's how we got here. <laughs> well, we lucked out that Bo is Afraid is not yet available on streaming. You got to pay to see this thing. And and uh, I think A24 has a decent enough model that that money is going to the creators. Maybe. We can hope. <laughs> it's it's the least we can do. You know, and everyone's got to decide, you know, what, what what's right for them. Uh, this seemed like a good compromise for us, but solidarity with everyone striking and, and hopefully they get everything they ask for very soon because these, these listen, these fucking streamers, they're trying to destroy the, the business. They're going to destroy art. Okay. If they have their way, everyone's going to get uploaded into a fucking AI and you're going to pay $40 a month for Netflix that you can use on one device and it's going to be, it's going to look like jib jab cartoons from 2004 with your favorite actor's AI deep fake face grafted onto some algorithmically designed bullshit. And enough is enough. Well, I think, I think it's important to stress this is a temporary change. When the actors, the writers are happy, so are we. And we'll go back to our usual bullshit. Well, I mean, we'll see. We'll see if Netflix survives all this. But I can tell you, rest assured... Your boys haven't changed, and the format of the show will be very similar to what we've always done. We're going to continue to provide you with quality content that you can uh, rest easy after listening to. If you like your spoiler room, you can keep it. (laughs) (laughs) 
And we're actually going to do something uh, on top of what Chris and Steven just described. We're also going to bring you something a little special at the end of uh, this episode, between this episode and next episode. Um, one of the things that really bothered me the most as I've been reading about the the strike situation is, I believe this was an anonymous comment that I saw somewhere from uh, someone at one of the studios who said they want this strike to go on until writers start losing their apartments. And this was before SAG went on strike, but it really, uh, (laughs) suffice to say, disturbed and upset me. Um, that these fuckers are willing to hold out until people's lives start being completely overturned. So what we'd like to do is use this moment to throw a little money the way of some folks, writers, actors, others in the entertainment industry who are striking and who need it right now. So for our next episode, normally we'd have the Wheel of Death pick our next film, but uh, we're going to auction off that right to you, the listening audience, and we're going to donate whatever money you all raise, uh, all of it. We're not going to take a penny. We're going to donate it to the Entertainment Community Fund, which is a nonprofit that's actually been around since the 1800s. That was one of the interesting things I learned about that as I was Hmm. researching it. But it supports the entertainment industry. They have an emergency assistance fund right now and actors who are in immediate need as in about to lose their housing or or otherwise have their lives thrown into turmoil can apply for a grant from this fund. So the money is going to go to help uh, writers, actors, folks in the industry who need it. So keep an eye on the socials for that so that you can pick our next movie and also help us send some money towards folks who really need it right now. Right on. Well, before we get into the main feature, we always like to do a little catch up. And uh, I'll go ahead and start this time, actually, because I watched another A24 horror movie in between episodes. I caught Talk to Me. Did either of you catch up with that in theaters by any chance? No, not yet. Uh, I'm glad to see it's doing really well. It's made about $40 million on a $5 million budget. That's pretty cool. Um, this is a, an Australian movie made by the Philippu brothers. I forget their names. They're known as uh, YouTube pranksters, Raka Raka. And this is kind of a boilerplate premise about a sort of uh, sort of seance, light as a feather, stiff as a board type of game that teens play, but with a, a pretty cruel twist and some interesting themes of, of course, grief because it's an A24 movie, but it also touches on uh, drug abuse and drug addiction in a really interesting way. Um, I would give this a cue it. But I, I enjoyed myself. I, I thought it was a little uneven, but there's some good scares, some good surprises in it. And uh, I, I will just say, um, if you're thinking of going to the bathroom during this movie, don't do it whenever anyone's in a hospital. Because I missed the five best seconds of the movie, apparently. A shot that people have been trying to describe to me that I cannot find any uh, any screen grabs of on the internet. And it sounds pretty wild. What have you all been up to? Horror-wise or otherwise. I've been making my way through uh, Ray Bradbury's Something Wicked This Way Comes, which I strangely have never read, even though I'm a big fan of Bradbury and have read um, you know, really most of his notable books, I think, other than Something Wicked, um, at the recommendation of uh, one of our faithful Amon fans, actually my sister, shout out, Brenna, borrowed her copy um, and have been really enjoying that. 
Although I will say it's contributing a little bit to, um, it's been very cloudy in Michigan lately and I'm getting this like sinking feeling that fall is coming sooner than my, my little summer brain can really handle. Um, and this is a fall ass book. It's a oh, Halloween yeah. ass book. Um, so I'm enjoying it very much, but it's also, uh, contributing a little bit to my, my alarm about summer disappearing. Um, but I guess that's just more credit to Bradbury and his delightful writing. So been enjoying that and really looking forward to tracking down the movie too, because I hear it's pretty decent. Yeah. Uh, Jonathan Price is in that. He plays the, oh, uh, yeah. I forget the character's name, but he plays the, the ringleader of the carnival. He's fucking awesome. Yeah. Perfect, Mr. Dark. Yes. Yes. Oh my God. It's yeah. been so long since I've read that. Um, well, we have some we have some bad news. Uh, this happened after we recorded our last episode, I think, but before we put it out, William Friedkin died. Mm-hmm. Reed, Known yeah, to us as a producer, director, and host of The Devil and Father Amort. And I watched a documentary available on Hoopla, which is a great, you know, speaking of nonprofit streamers, Hoopla, your local library probably has access to it. um, Free streaming. They have Friedkin Uncut, which is a documentary about William Friedkin centered on uh, mostly on a interview with Friedkin and sort of a retrospective of his filmography too. We have to issue a correction because when we reviewed the devil and father of Mort, we were, we talked a lot about, Oh, isn't it cute how this, you know, acclaimed cinematic director is trying his hand at the little documentary. William Friedkin started out making documentaries. Oh, and he made a, he made a documentary called the people versus Paul Crump about a death row inmate in the 60s 1962 and this this documentary got Paul Crump exonerated and off of death row wow and he said it was then that he learned he was like if my shitty film could get a save a man's life then i was just so in awe of the power of cinema so good for him uh, but he's he's passed on now. Very sad. So I watched that documentary to help remember him. And and what a personality, what a force, what a career. And uh, a man with very interesting philosophies on filmmaking, too. Like, he preferred to only do one take of anything, which hmm. is kind of crazy. R.I.P. R.I.P., man. I think the, the trailer for the new Exorcism reboot is probably what did him in, but... Ugh. It definitely contributed to it. It almost killed me when I saw it help. before Oppenheimer <laughs> or whatever it was. Dude, I didn't even know that was coming when we went to see Oppenheimer. <laughs> Somehow I hadn't even seen anything else about it on social media. And we walked in, I think, just after it started. And I was like, is this? Uh, was my reaction. It looks so, uh, it looks so upsettingly like it carries on kind of the same formula as david gordon green's other his his other uh horror remake yeah. reboot travesty the halloween movies oh my yeah. god it looks i mean i would probably be more inclined to give it a shot if not for the fucking shit show of all those halloween movies but yeah anyways r.i.p william friedkin r.i.p william friedkin uh yeah so can't imagine you guys were too pleased when you found out that we were going to be watching Bo is Afraid for this episode. You know, I was actually kind of happy because I had <laughs> I wanted to go see it the entire time I was in theaters because I love Ari Aster. Um, but it was just like, 
and this persisted into once it actually arrived on video streaming, whatever, it was still just like, I have such a hard time psyching myself up to watch any three hour movie, literally any three. Well, actually, no, not literally Avengers Endgame. I'll watch that any fucking time. But at most any other three hour movie, I'm like, eh. so it was nice to actually like be assigned it. Yeah, I, I've been meaning to see it, too, and it was good to actually be forced to watch it because it's been on my list, but it was probably going to be years before I actually sat my ass down and, and watched Ari Aster's uh, latest. Yeah. But hey, it took, it took me like six years to watch Midsummer. so. Well, especially having heard like that it was sort of this surreal, ambling, perhaps comedy, perhaps adventure, perhaps horror film, and that people were a little uh, nonplussed by it in yeah. some cases. It wasn't like I had heard, wow, this is a fucking blast of a movie. So there, there weren't a ton of incentives to actually see it. So thanks for giving me one. The buzz was not good. It's not like when I saw the three-hour movie, The Aviator, two weeks ago and told everybody I know they need to drop what they're doing and see it immediately. I won't say the buzz felt bad to me. It just it just sounded like a complicated and sort of difficult film, you know, not like a fun film. And also, like, here's the thing. Ari Aster, I like Ari Aster. I think he's extremely talented. But on the basis of Hereditary and Midsummer, I didn't feel like I needed him to do a three-hour passion project. <laughs> you know, like I feel like he still needs an editor, and maybe even Hereditary and Midsummer could have used an editor. <laughs> he needs an editor and a better therapist if he already has one. Um, well, we, and we are sponsored yes. today by BetterHelp. Uh, enter, <laughs> enter the code Amon for three free sessions. Ari, looking at you. Mm. Um, the plot to this movie is ostensibly pretty simple. I think the description online is like one sentence. This is about a a kind of slovenly middle-aged man who lives in a in like a nearly war-torn ghetto who's having a mental health crisis. Eventually he goes on live TV with Robert De Niro, he paints his face <laughs> like a clown. That's we'll put a bookmark there cuz that's something I want to bring up. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Anyway, uh his his uh, domineering mother is expecting a visit from him. He's trying to get home to his mom and he gets uh, derailed in every conceivable fashion you can possibly imagine and even plenty that you probably couldn't imagine. It's like super bad. <laughs> A little bit. I was thinking maybe more like um, it's like like uh, have you guys ever seen After Hours the Scorsese? Yeah, 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 yeah. That's the, it's, it's a little bit uh... like that. It's like one of those one bad day sort of movies that that young film students make and I have it on on good authority that Ari Aster started writing this movie when he he is fairly young but he wrote it when he was quite young probably still in college and it's got a lot of that sort of feel to it of you know let's test the audience's patience with how much weird shit we can pack into one movie one character and a uh, an abbreviated time frame and this movie is bananas it's it's hard to talk about it's hard to summarize it's hard to certainly a fool's errand to try to really explain what happens in this movie uh he Every scene, every moment after the first couple minutes, which are pretty buttoned down mm -hmm. is just insane and darkly comic at every turn and surreal and clearly not set in a objective reality. Right. And it's a movie that largely leaves it up to you to figure out what all this means. If anything, 
It's highly episodic. Yes. It's episodic and almost every scene is a different set piece, you know? Like yes. like almost every scene kind of works in its own self-contained way as like a short film about something going horribly, horribly wrong to this poor guy. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they're probably like what, six or seven kind of main sort of chapters to this. They're all very different, almost like almost feel different genres mm-hmm. at times. I would say there are there are five distinct uh, sections of this movie, and you're right. They yeah. each feel not quite like they were directed by a different person, but they have a completely different tone. And I kind of love that. Yeah. You know, if nothing else, I admire this film for its ambition. I don't know about its intentions, and we will get very deep into that at some point. But, uh, you know, why don't we start at the beginning, which I thought is the most enjoyable or at least the most consistently fun and hilarious section of this movie which is just kind of Bo's everyday life in this this horrible ghetto that he lives in above a a peep show and even something as simple as going off the st- going across the street to get a glass of water turns into a complete fiasco i mean even something as simple as taking his pill before that like the yeah. reason he goes across the street is he has a new prescription he puts the pill in his mouth and then flips the fuck out because the water is off in his apartment so then it prompts this arduous journey across the street to get water like everything every little thing he attempts to do is just a herculean task basically yeah it should be noted that his therapist makes it clear as well as the 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 medication bottle that it must be taken with water. And I just must, found it, yeah. I found even that to be completely, completely hilarious. Like, like what, it, what it like in our, in arbitrary instruction that has such grave implications. Well, and it's funny because, and I mean, this is going to be a theme for me. Like this movie reminded me, uh, this movie reminded me so intensely of my own struggles with anxiety. And this is literally something I've thought about. Like the, you know, there are those medications or, vitamins, whatever that are like, drink this with a full glass of water must be drank with, you know, at least eight ounces of water. And I, I, I've never gotten quite as stressed about it as Bo has, but I'm like, what if I only drink it with four ounces of water? Will I be okay? You know? So it was, even that was like just the start of a long string of things that were oddly relatable to me in this movie. Yeah. I'd be, I'd be curious to hear more about your perception of all that. Cause kind of one of the central jokes of the movie, at least at, especially the first half of the movie, I would say, uh, but even more particularly this first act is Bo basically Bo's reality is like manifesting everything you could possibly be anxious mm-hmm. about happening all at once. Mm-hmm. It, it's like, it's, it's like he's because as a character, Bo is afraid. He's afraid of all kinds of things, rational or irrational and whatever you could possibly be afraid about he's extremely preoccupied with, but also it's happening very literally. (laughs) Um, Yeah. He can't even walk home safely from his therapist appointment, which we got to talk about his therapist. Um, What is the name of the actor? He's the played the priest in lady bird. That's all I know. Oh yeah. Um, I got to look his name up. This guy is fucking awesome. While you look that up though, I want to like follow up on what Chris just said, because it kind of touches on like my read of this entire movie, which is not to say, you know, it's, it's kind of like a, like a Chris reading of one of the movies, or I'm not necessarily saying this is what Ari intended or what his creative process was, but this reminded me strongly of in therapy when, you know, you're talking about anxious thoughts and the therapist 
common strategy is usually they say, okay, we'll follow that thing you're worried about. Like what happens if the thing you're worried about happens? And then what happens after that? And then like follow it all the way to its conclusion. And mm -hmm. usually the result, of course, the intended result is you go, okay, this is wild. I'm getting way too fantastical in my thinking and you usually reach some kind of absurd conclusion in the end. And I feel like that was almost, this feels like that was the narrative uh, approach in structuring this screenplay it was like, keep taking it to the most absurd end for this character. And I mean, that's pretty much where this all winds up too. And, it, and yeah, it, it's like if you, if you, if you go through that chain of events, but it literally happens to him yeah. instead of him just reciting yeah. it to a, um, Stephen McKinley Henderson is the name of the yeah. actor who plays the therapist, who is just so perfect. I mean, I don't know if either of you two relate to this, but I've I've had a couple of therapists that are just a little too cheerful. <laughs> no, no matter how like dire your circumstances might feel to you, where they're they're always smiling and nodding. He he has a he has a notebook, you know, kind of classic. And during the entire session, he literally only writes down one thing, which is the word guilty. Yeah. <laughs> Which which is which is a major major theme of the movie um, mm -hmm. that that Bo is just riddled with guilt because he can never seem to please his mom even when she asks the simplest things of him like just coming out to visit, mm -hmm. which and again kind of fits into how I see it as being like this is you know Bo's subjective reality and in his head that's the only yeah. thing his therapist is thinking about the only takeaway for the therapist from this session is that he is guilty and obviously you can read that uh, in various ways too not only that he feels guilt but that he is guilty of something his therapist thinks he is guilty of something that's interesting because i want i rewatched the first few minutes of this movie i i think this is a movie that you would get a lot more from uh watching it a second time well steven did watch it a second time so you can correct me. and i can tell you i got nothing more out of it it is it is uh, as shallow as the first time <laughs> Okay. So if you're you don't don't try too hard with this. There are some cute uh moments of foreshadowing yes. uh, going on. But yeah, I watched the beginning cuz and the main the reason I I rewatched the beginning is because I re I wanted to take note of when and why things go off the rails and how the movie started because the therapist scene at first glance at least seems very normal and even when he leaves it sort of starts to ramp up from there. And I was like, is this like, I'm sure it's nothing as literal as like, Oh, he's on the new medication and that's what's causing any of this. But I was, I was trying to like feel out that point where things got weird, but now you're making me think that it was weird from the get go. And that is that when he writes guilty, it's, it's, a, it's still his anxiety about what his, his therapist is doing or thinking. Yeah. I think it's definitely weird from the get go. It's totally weird from the get-go, but it does ramp up once he takes the medication. At least that was my read the second time through. I mean, if you want to point out sort of a catalyst, it, the movie literally starts with his first-person experience of being born, which is yeah. horrifying. And he gets dropped on his head, I think, right? As soon as he is, uh, as soon as he is born. Um, <laughs> so, if anything, that may be the catalyst for mm. all this. <laughs> yes. Yes, I, I do like a good blurry being born sequence. <laughs> um, but yeah, I, I I really admire the approach. And I thought it was a very charming gimmick to have this 
sort of all these anxieties happening and none of it makes any sense except that you get on board pretty early with with sort of what they're doing and Ari Aster continues to be I, I I'm not going to use any superlative language, but he is a masterful director. I don't oh, he always the fuck out of this movie. I don't always like what he's trying to do, but he directs the shit out of this, and it's I, I you know I gotta. There's no reason to be critical or cynical of his style. He's a master. Um, I always hope his next movie is going to be better than his last movie. (laughs) Just what he does with like, there are so many like big ensemble shots in this movie. There are lots of quiet moments as well, but in the, in, in, in like the first chapter where, where Bo is kind of in and around his apartment and all of the terrifying things that happen both in the building on the street. I mean, there are times that I thought of like, like Jacques Tati, as much as oh, I thought yeah. of Scorsese, like, like with what he's doing with all of the background details, I will say that is something I was able to pick up more of on the second viewing, especially being able to like pause it and kind of look around and see all the mm-hmm. dumb dick jokes that are written on things in the background and all of that. But you know, there's like at any point, there's like 60 performers doing something completely different, independent of each other. And I asked her, does a great job of making that feel kinetic and exciting and capturing the chaos of it all. It's a hilarious movie, at least for the first yeah. two hours or so. Uh, I laughed my ass off. He had me right where he wanted me. The thing I was going to say about Joker is Joaquin Phoenix is such a good actor, but I'm getting a little tired of him playing this guy who like just yes. doesn't talk and murmurs. Yep. Yep. <laughs> well, okay, that that I felt like was when we were talking about like what's the what's the cast when do things get really crazy it's it's when he takes the medication that he seems to lose all ability to like speak or stand up for himself or anything and he just mumbles for the rest of the fucking movie and it's so annoying it's so hard to watch characters who are like just seemingly helpless you know yeah. and, and for so long i just I wanted feel... to like reach in and grab him and slap him around a bit I feel like he got lost in the character of himself when he did that uh, I'm still here or whatever it's called like 10, 15 years ago. And he was playing Mm -hmm. like the, the weird, like spaced out version of himself. And I think, and I I mean, I'm half joking, but also it kind of feels like he never really looked back from that. Just like spaced out, like mumbly kind of thing. I mean, he is still a great actor. He's done great performances, since then, and I mean, I think he's even good in this. But yeah, I am a little tired of the just the weird way he talks. Yeah, he he makes some pretty bold choices in this for sure, and he's fully committed to it. He does what's asked of him, and there are times where I just I actually thought like you know I may not like this character, but I don't understand how you inhabit that headspace as an actor and commit to it so hard. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like there's one shot that really stood out to me. Um, toward the end of the movie and I won't describe the circumstances where I was like, I don't, I actually don't think I really noticed it the first time or if I did, it just kind of blew past me, but there's an entire long shot where he's walking toward the camera at night and he just has this pained look of horror on his face. That's completely frozen. <laughs> yes. You know what I'm talking yeah, about? Yeah. Yeah. Oh shot. yeah. Oh yeah. That's great. <laughs> like what a choice. And he doesn't return to it in the next shot after it cuts. He's like, you know, 
as normal as his character could possibly be again and as expressive <laughs> yeah his mouth is a gape his eyes are like yeah. bugging out that was that was <laughs> i i like leaned in towards my tv screen to like try and confirm what i was seeing because mm-hmm. it was so almost cartoonish looking yeah um it's not a horror film we should say that <laughs> Well, there's a you, lot of horror in it, though. Man. Yeah, there's a lot of horror. There's a monster in this. There's uh, there there is a there's a a naked serial stabber roaming yeah. the streets. Yeah, but it's I mean, all right. So there's a few points. There, there's it's fun because I'm trying to think of who else. Well, James Wan did this, um, and he does this like in Aquaman, especially. I, I this happens where like you're watching a superhero movie, and then they go in the deep sea trench, and you're like, oh wait, yeah, it's James Wan's here with his his kid of tools and his his red lights and his monsters and stuff. Same sort of thing happens in this movie where it's all like. It's it's there's some eerie stuff and then every now and then like he takes you to hereditary land and then mm-hmm. like pulls the punch though. <laughs> yeah. And it's kind of it's kind of fun. Um I mean, yeah, there's stuff that feels more like traditionally horror on the face of it, but again, just like the anxiety of this and the way he turns uh you know, even just simple interactions like domestic interactions into weirdly deeply unsettling things colored flavored by Bo's anxiety practically the whole thing feels like a horror movie one way or another to me and I mean the genre is it's all over the place for sure but it it pretty much the whole thing feels like horror in some way to me yeah but it's it makes me feel horror you know it's it's funny though because he's he it's often like oh look at this thing that's going wrong and you see how afraid Bo is of it. And, but, yeah. and that's funny. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's, it, it goes back to the therapy thing I was saying, like reducing the anxiety to absurdity, you know, yeah. but it, it, it's constantly just like living on that tightrope where you can feel his revulsion and, and fear about everything. But also, I, I don't know. It's so weird because it, it lives in both worlds where you can see how ridiculous it is, but also feel his paranoia and fear about everything, which, again, very relatable for me. <laughs> I, I relate on, on a lot of levels, but I think like one thing that allowed me to sort of distance myself from the film is the fact that Bo is just so comically pathetic. You know, like, like oh, on yeah. some level, I can I can appreciate being that anxious, but there's kind of a I felt a sense of remove and maybe even catharsis knowing that like I'm supposed to laugh at this guy the entire way through. I'm I'm never really supposed to feel pity for him. Mm-hmm. And I think that's fine. Yeah, I think you're supposed to feel pity, but I mean certainly his his passiveness uh is is pretty comical. And this he's he I think he's a comical character. He's kind of like a like a Don Quixote or whatever. Yeah, and, you know, and it's an yeah. epic. It's like the you know it's been compared to the Odyssey, probably by Ari Aster, um, <laughs> and Lord of the Rings by Ari Aster. Oh, has it now? Um, you know, and and it's 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 fun to have that kind of character that you're not too invested in traipsing along and going on these these insane adventures mm-hmm. um yeah enjoy. yeah it's a it's a picaresque is the term for it you know we're we're, we're, we're kind of following like a, a a character who and his comical exploits 
through a series of of different settings, uh, each you know kind of escalating into wilder and wilder territory. Mm-hmm. So I think I think Don Quixote is probably the perfect uh, that or like uh, the one that uh, Ari Aster likes to point to is Tristram Shandy, which I've never read, but I've seen the Steve Coogan movie, and it, it's it's got some similar qualities. Mm-hmm. Um, but three hours of that can be a bit much. Mm. I feel like there's so many fun surprises in this movie that we might want to just go to the spoiler room sooner rather than later so we can talk about stuff in more detail because I, it's hard to talk about, it's hard to go into what happens in this movie without giving too much away in my opinion. I agree. I mean, yeah, I think we've even already said the broad setup, but just to like encapsulate it. Yeah. So, so, um, I, I think we can say that uh, he does make uh, Bo does make an earnest effort to get to his mom after you know things get foiled in increasingly complicated ways. Uh, he winds up <laughs> while naked, being hit by a truck and taken off to Nathan Lane and Amy Ryan's home to rehabilitate him. He 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 winds up in this kind of like Wes Anderson type community theater thing in the woods. He he does eventually make it to his mom's house. And what happens all throughout, though, is impossible to describe without getting into spoilers, I think. So would you view it, cue it, or screw it, Stephen? I mean, I'm so conflicted because I saw it in the theater. I paid to rent it the other night. It's a movie I never thought I'd watch twice, but I thought it'd be fun because I know I can. I know what happens. I know that I can break it up. You know, I know that I can pause and look around and and see. And I I just found the thing to be. It just feels like a big joke against the audience and A24. And Ari Aster has said so much in interviews that he thought A24 was. I think he actually used the word stupid for green relating this movie. And this is one of the rare movies that A24 actually produced. Like they actually put up the money for it. They don't do that very often. It just feels like. This might mean a lot to him, or it might not, but there's not really a lot going on beneath the surface of it beyond, you know, the visual style and the tension and the comedy. Um, it's, it's ult- I ultimately did not find it very deep or rewarding to try and dig deeper into on in a second viewing. It's three hours, you know, that's already, you know, putting some marks against it. I think I got to give it a screw it. I think I I think I I kind of hate this movie, but there are scenes in it that I'll remember forever and look back on fondly and laugh or even reference in conversation. But it's 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 a I found it overall both times to be kind of a punishing experience without any reward whatsoever. Chris, would you view Q or screw Bo's afraid? I'm very conflicted on this because I it's unlike anything I've ever seen. And I enjoyed so much of it, so much. I hate to have a normie opinion, but that last act just I, it was not satisfying at all. And it was a, it went on forever. Um, and it really kind of made this a movie that's very hard for me to recommend to anybody. But I am glad I watched it. So I'm going to give it a cue it. Um, because I, I just can't recommend, I can't recommend it without caveats, but it was largely a delight. And I think it's really cool that Ari Aster tried this and got to do it 
and make such a unique and uncompromising movie. And even if everything doesn't work, I think that when you do that and you take those big swings, there's plenty of room for error before I start getting pissed off. Hmm. 50 minutes or so of not having fun <laughs> does start to piss me off. <laughs> um, but I mean, I have no malice towards this movie. Uh, so cue it. Patrick. I'll agree that it's hard to recommend without caveats. Um, the section of this that dragged for me was the theater section in the middle. And we'll talk about that obviously more in the spoiler room. That was one of the ones where it, it, it sagged and it felt like I didn't really know what the hell we were doing exactly. But for the most part, I found this really enjoyable. As Chris said, it's certainly singular. There's, I've never really, I mean, we've, we've described a couple movies that are sort of like it, but there's, there's nothing quite like this. And I enjoyed it a lot as like a weird meditation on anxiety and a weird way to make a movie about anxiety by, again, just following these sort of uh, anxious, intrusive thoughts to their logical or illogical conclusion. I kind of loved it. I don't think I'll ever watch it again, but I'm really glad I saw it and I will give it a view it. I mean, look, anytime... In 2023, anytime you can make something that feels completely fresh, it's a it's a pretty significant accomplishment. I yeah, think. dude. And yeah. and something that that's completely fresh but doesn't feel like an experiment, really. Like Skin of Marink, you know. I guess that's that's new. That I haven't seen anything like mm-hmm. that before. But it feels very much like an experimental art film. This doesn't feel like an experimental film. This feels like a very good director doing exactly what he wants to do in a format that makes sense. It's got some problems, in my opinion, but you know, good good for them. How how often can you say you've seen something? That you've never seen before. Skinnamarink is not entertaining. Skinnamarink borders on artless. I would say this is entertaining. You can't say it's you. You can't even if you hated the movie. You can't tell me that you didn't find at least one entertaining moment yeah. in it. You know, at, let alone you. I bet you could hate this movie and still say, yeah, this entertained me at like these ten different points. Mm-hmm. You know, I understand sure. why it would be a slog for a lot of people, but I think even somebody who like just gets completely lost with this is still going to be like. Yeah, that was pretty fucking funny. Or, yeah, I'll never forget that. <laughs> and it's artful. It's not artless. It's artful. Absolutely. You know, yeah. even, in the, even in the slow parts, even in the parts I didn't like, I wasn't that big on the theater section either. But, I mean, talk about artistry in that section, mm-hmm. you know? Yeah, absolutely. Amazing. A lesser film would have the theater sequence and then 20 minutes of bullshit on either side of it. And they'd be like, that's our movie. That's all the, that's all the yeah. creativity we need to put in a movie. Yeah, and I mean, like, you know, to go back to the the quote Stephen pulled from Ari, like, I mean, yeah, A24 kind of is stupid by normal, like, uh, industry standards for making this. But that's one of the cool things about A24 is they're just like, you know what, fuck it, we'll give you some money to make your crazy-ass three-hour adventure horror comedy, whatever the fuck about anxiety that literally, I mean, they're because they're not stupid like they had to know this was not going to be like a blockbuster but that's one of the cool things about a24 and one of the reasons that uh we are doing this i guess because they actually support artists to do shit like this yeah sure and they took a risk and you know i roll my eyes at ari aster sometimes but it would be a tragedy it would of monumental proportions if this somehow resulted in people not wanting to give Ari Aster money to make movies. 
You know? mm. I think it's highly possible, though, because of how much money this lost. I can see A24 being like, yeah, you know, we, we knew there's a pretty good chance that even though your first two films made us a ton of money and were unconventional, that this one might just not hit the mark. I think they'll I think they'll probably go back to the well with him. I can I can't see another studio doing that after this failure though. I can't see like Universal wanting to make a movie with RES. It's so stupid though because even in this he's failing so high above other people's successes. I agree with you. And he's demonstrating so much ability. It's like if you watch an NBA game and a guy puts up 40 points, but he's doing it in the wrong basket or something. (laughs) (laughs) Maybe that's not the right analogy, but he's doing everything right and and showing so much skill and putting on a show. The end result, you know, who cares about the money it made? Jesus. Anyway. No, I I do agree with Steven, though, like I uh, in the sense that. (laughs) <laughs> whoever bankrolls him next is going to be like, all right, bro, you, you got to do one for us this time, like rein it back in a little bit. If you know, and I wouldn't frankly be surprised if there was at least some discussion about this before this movie came out, even where they were like, yeah, do your fucking thing. And then, you know, make us a less weird horror movie, li- something a little more marketable for the next one. Now they're going to make him do hereditary scary too, too scary. And, um, <laughs> you know, that sucks. They're going to replace uh, David Gordon Green with him on The Exorcist 2, 3, whatever the fuck the next one's going to be. Speaking of which, let me let me read. I, I follow a, a film critic online that I have a love-hate relationship with named A.B. Allen. And I, I sometimes this person pisses me off. Sometimes I love this person's reviews. But uh, they said in their review of this movie that Ari Aster is one of the few filmmakers operating in horror and horror-adjacent media that doesn't seem intent on making navel-gazing homages to other people's work. His influences are apparent, but his style feels entirely its own thing, and it's exhilarating to have a voice so intent on making its own stamp on its own terms. Aster isn't the new version of any canonized titan of the industry, he's just Ari Aster. And I get the distinct feeling that's going to carry a lot of weight a few decades down the line. Hey, I mean, it's worth noting that his career is quite young and he's demonstrated the ability to shoot all manner of insanity. I could I could even see him making like, a you know, prestige dramas at one point deciding like, you know what? I'm done telling dick jokes. I want to I want to use my craft to tell a serious story. about. like I could see him being a, a like a Spielberg like figure at some point if he decides uh, for his films not to be so um, so uh, uh, challenging on a, on a genre level. I don't, you know, I'm talking like 30 years from now, though. I don't know. Yeah. I, I, he reminds me of Tarantino in a way where he's like, mm. he's got all this skill, but he's always going to want to go for the dick joke. <laughs> <laughs> Doesn't matter if it's now or in 30 years. <laughs> Well, there's a big dick joke in this that. movie, and we're going to talk about it in the spoiler room. Uh, before we go down there, though, check us out on your social media platform of choice. We're on the Twitter. We're on the Instagram. All the shit. We're on Discord. We have a lively discussion going on over there. Many lively discussions going on about all manner of things, not just related to the show, but to horror in general. We have a store. You can buy merch from us, but we'd prefer that you spend that money on this little auction that we're going to be running, 
Patrick, do you want to throw in another little plug for that before we go down? Yeah, absolutely. We are going to auction off the rights to pick our next movie, and you can place your bid at everyhorrormovie on netflix.com slash auction. All the proceeds from that auction are going to go to the Entertainment Community Fund, which right now is offering grants to actors, writers, folks in the industry who need it in the midst of this strike situation. All right. Well, this trip to the spoiler room has been, to to, uh, paraphrase a line from this movie, outrageously postponed. So we'll see you down there in a minute. Spoil everything about Bo is Afraid. All right, welcome back to every A24 movie on Blu-ray. We are down here in the spoiler room. We're at the spoiler theater camp. We're going to spoil everything about this movie. I think there's there's two, I don't know, in my mind, you guys may have other thoughts. There's two big spoilers in this movie. The first one is when we find out that Bo's mom, after he is unable to catch the flight out to visit her, she dies. He gets a call. No, yeah. yeah. He gets a call. No, he, he gets calls. a phone call. He calls. Bill Hader answers the phone, <laughs> of all people. Playing a UPS delivery man. Who is, and we find whose out, face is barely seen in the film. Uh, yeah, he's he's facing away from the camera. Yeah. It's funny show up, and we get like a little like three-quarter turn. Uh, yeah, he gets a call that uh, he he has he's found this phone next to the body of a woman who has had her head decapitated by a chandelier no destroyed exploded by a chandelier chandelier. nothing exploded there's nothing left and there's a hilarious little 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 joke here where bill Hader says something like like is is this the number programmed in your phone maybe you misdialed bo goes to look at his phone and i did catch this detail the first time and found it even funnier the second time in his recent calls movie phone is listed (laughs) Oh yeah, <laughs> which begs the begs the question: Like, when is this movie even set? I just think it's so funny and and deranged. And it turns out that in fact it is his mom, Mona Wasserman's phone. She has died. Bo has got to get there because uh, another great phone performance in this from Richard Kind, yeah. <laughs> who's so fucking good. And I didn't know who it was until he showed up at the <laughs> end. Uh, says that it was his mother's unfortunate wish that she not be buried without her son present and that every moment that they wait only deepens the humiliation yeah bo's got to get the fuck out of town just this hilariously confrontational attitude and richard kind is her lawyer i think right yeah yeah Mm -hmm. just just absolutely berating bo for absolutely no reason and that's a that's a, a a Jewish custom too because like she's got to get in the ground per the the Jewish customs um, yeah and so it's 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 a it's a grave deal to unnecessarily delay this burial it's a, and they, that's that is where my reference was before the spoiler and break that he says my favorite line in the movie the burial has been outrageously <laughs> yeah yeah oh my god. Uh, yeah, and, and so, I mean, it's really, 
it's part of the premise that he's trying to make it back for the burial, but the way that information is revealed is so enjoyable that mm-hmm. we had to save it for the spoiler room. Well, yeah, we should note that happens in like the first 20 minutes or something. Like usually yeah. spoiler room is third act shit. But today Chris said, no, we can't talk about <laughs> anything after the first 20 minutes. <laughs> anything after the first 10 minutes. Cause there's just a surprise a minute in this. And Oh, yeah, and before this, or shortly after this is when we get, oh, God, there's so much. The reason Bo can't make it on the flight is because he, for, I think he forgets something in his apartment, in, or he has to run across the hall, and he left the keys in the door. He comes yeah. back, the apartment door is closed, the keys are gone. His luggage is gone. His luggage is gone. Yeah, it's, it's one of those, it's just another one of those anxiety things, mm-hmm. like, you know, how many times have you set something down and run across the room? Like, hell, when my power went out, I was working at the library and I went to, you know, the bathroom or the, the drinking fountain and I left my computer unattended and it was like still an eyesight. <laughs> and I was like, I'm only going to be gone 20 seconds. <laughs> Dude, literally every time that I accidentally leave my keys in the door, or somebody leaves the keys in the door. I when I realize have that realization that they've just been sitting in there sometimes overnight anxiety brain just goes like 17 different things that could have happened that didn't of course it was fine but all the things that could have happened by just leaving the keys in the door because everybody is out to steal my keys from my door you know and in this movie it's all true and not only are they gonna steal your keys but they're gonna get in your apartment while you're running to the store for a bottle of water and the most comical yeah like the the worst party you could ever imagine yeah. happening when you're out of the house is going to happen. The worst people. And on top of it all, there's a brown recluse spider in the building while this is happening. And we know <laughs> right. we get we get a POV shot from like the floor inside of his apartment showing the spider like skittering across. So we know that that's going to pay off at some point, too. Um, I, I have a... a Two quick things to say about this. One, this movie is based on or inspired by a short that Ari Aster made when he was at, the, I think it was when he was at the AFI, called Bo, and it starred the lead actor from his short film that I love, um, The Strange Thing About the Johnsons. And the, the the short film is a guy leaves his keys in, in the door of his apartment, and then they disappear, and it's a series of escalating events. I can't find it online right now, so I don't know how closely it mirrors the sequence of events in that portion of this movie, but I'd love to see it and see what like an early draft for this kind of horror comedy looked like. And I know someone who's basically done this. I have a neighbor who left the keys to their apartment and both of their cars in their car in the ignition and had both cars stolen a few months ago, which would be my nightmare. Yep. Right. The, they clearly haven't learned their lesson because the other day I woke up and went out to get the mail and they had left the back door of their car open all night. Wow. So there might be a whole kind of bow situation going on across from me. Yeah. Um, so on a second viewing, some of that felt a little more like tangible and relatable. Yeah, just all this stuff that happens in his neighborhood is just great. I mean, we touched on it already. I don't want to harp on it too much more, but just the the portrayal of everything being 
scary, loud, aggressive, like literally his walls are shaking. I love that mm-hmm. effect of just the walls shaking so hard from the noise outside. And then someone's pissed at him, slips a note yes. under his door, which is another great anxiety manifestation thing. Like, again, this is me. Like, I'm like so sensitive to any noise around me, especially when I'm trying to sleep. Same. And then like the fear that my neighbor actually hates me for some unspecified reason while I'm, you know, being oversensitive to everything around me. It was just, I just saw myself in this in like a a really humorous way. I was able to go, wow, this really is, it helped me do that like reductio ad absurdum of my own thoughts, you know? Mm-hmm. I love that stuff because I relate so hard too. I'm super sensitive to noise. I sleep with headphones on and white noise, even though I live in a quiet yep. neighborhood, just from years of living in really chaotic places. And I love that, like, the, the, the even like the notes themselves kind of are animated and, t- and escalate in a way. Yeah. Like, at one point, one of them slides from under the door all the yeah. way up to him very <laughs> dramatically. <laughs> oh, it's so brilliant. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Something I thought was interesting was that this whole opening section, but where Bo lives, like when you think of an epic, like you think of the Odyssey or whatever, usually it's like, oh, the hero's going from his shire, his tranquil place into (laughs) a world of danger. Mm. Here, Bo starts out in a world of danger with the worst (laughs) vibes of any place he travels to. And, you know, sort of progressively travels to more tranquil places. Um, Mm -hmm. And I thought that was kind of an interesting inversion. And I'm not sure what, if anything, it means or if it's intentional. Places that are more tranquil, like sort of on the face of them, but then still horrible shit happens to him there. At least, yeah, horrible shit happens to him everywhere. Yeah. So, you know, that's a level playing field. <laughs> but yeah. but just nowhere he goes has as much open hostility, yeah. bad vibes, and apparent danger yeah. as where he starts off. Yeah. Um, yeah. That is a funny subversion. You know, I, in our, I mentioned before Ari Aster has called this a Jewish Lord of the Rings in the press. And I thought mm-hmm. like, okay, you know, is it really... But they're, they're, that very well could have been an inspiration now that you lay it out that way. Yeah. This is something I thought, and this might be this might be a complete stretch, but again, like we're at a disadvantage. I just watched this movie yesterday, and I feel like I need to kick it around my head for a month before I'm qualified to have any takes on it. But here we are doing, doing this show, <laughs> talking like we know some shit. Um, I have a cousin who's uh very religious he's a he's he's essentially a pastor he's not really a pastor but uh, essentially and i remember a long time ago the question came up of like literal hell like is hell literal and he was like no there's no literal hell hell is being removed from the love of god who loves you Mm. and watching this i thought of that because i'm like Mm. this man Bo is living in hell and and I think not only is it hellish circumstances, but like it looks like hell on some occasions. He's got these like long red lit windowless corridors in his apartment building yeah. and stuff. And it's like maybe that's something going on here because the big conflict of this movie is him being removed from the love of his mother or not knowing how to reconcile the love of his mother or just not having love in his life in a reliable way. And, mm. and kind of searching for it. So, I don't know. Well, it, 
And there's a reason for that. So maybe we should get into a little bit about what we know about Bo and his upbringing and his ancestry. His father allegedly died while conceiving him. Literally, the orgasm killed him. He had a heart murmur. Bo has the same condition. In flashbacks, we find out that his mother has forbidden him or warned him not to have sex. He cannot have sex because if he does, he will die like his father. There were a lot of flashbacks to this idyllic vacation at a resort where he strikes up a little meet-cute with a young girl. It's about on a his cruise, age. actually. A cruise, yeah, okay. And, uh, and, and she's kind of abruptly taken away and asks him to wait for her. You know, they're probably like 10, 11 years old. And he has literally waited for her until his you know, late 40s, early 50s, however old his character is supposed to be. Oh, this makes a lot more sense now because I thought she meant like wait for her, her like at a port or something. But no, no, she just means, means she means don't like have wait. sex ever. Yeah, or at least that's how he interprets right, it. Yeah. And that does come to bear in the end. That makes some that makes some things make more sense, which adds layers to his his uh, mother's kind of controlling hold on him, which we should also say she has played. Uh, not in flashback, but her voice, I think it's her voice throughout, and then in the flesh, the end of the film, by Patti Lapone, who is just fucking terrifying. Mm-hmm. She's so, the second I first heard her voice, I immediately distrusted her calling him sweetie and trying to be motherly and like feigning surprise that that he might be anxious about coming to visit or that he might be lying that he's coming to visit and like just the way that she uses the the script and her voice to kind of like wrap wrap tendrils around him and, and ratchet up his anxiety is so compelling to watch and listen to so yeah he he moves on from the from the city to the home of uh, Nathan Lane and the actress I'm not really familiar with, but you Amy mentioned Ryan, dude, yeah. Amy Ryan rules. Oh my god, she's so good in this. Yeah, and it just and they're they're like ostensibly nursing him back to health after he's been hit by a truck. Their truck. Well, Amy Ryan hit him. Uh, let's just say briefly. At one point, Bo winds up in the street naked because he's taken a bath, and he looks up and. Not all the party guests have left the apartment after he thought it's been cleared out, after it's been ransacked. There's a man, like, ten feet up, like, at, toward the ceiling, holding onto the walls and about to slip and fall on him in the bathtub. And then the brown recluse claw- crawls onto his face and bites him. He falls. Bo runs into the street naked and is stabbed by a naked stabber who has been in the news and who's <laughs> running around. And shortly after that, he gets comically hit by this big like delivery truck we should also mention the relevant detail that we get to see for the first time his enormous testicles in this bath which is also a plot point that he has epididymitis which is a swelling of the testicles which i mean a tmi but i can't not reveal that this is also a point on which i relate to this movie because i've had this condition and not not to the extent that Bo does but like i've had i've been diagnosed with this condition it's not Super fun. Um, but it was just, there were so many fucking weird things in this where I was like, did they make this movie about me? <laughs> Damn. I think you and Ari need to have lunch. I think we do, dude. <laughs> My twin flame. <laughs> wow. 
Um, I love when he wakes up in the bedroom and we get to see, like, he wakes up in their teenage daughter's bedroom and she's a piece of work. Um, <laughs> love little, hilarious performance. Nathan Lane All that was amazing. The yeah. set design is amazing. She's got all these fake, like, K-pop boy band posters, <laughs> like, Gotawana is one of the band names that's <laughs> Oh, are they all fake? I was looking at those, like, trying yeah. to pick out, like, an artist that I might know, and I was not. I didn't realize oh. they were all fake. That's great. No, they're all, like, bad Photoshop. There's too. one that's, like, Kiss, but it's, like, KI-55, and then it's, like, yeah. 55 boys want a kiss or something. Yeah. There's yeah, there's a lot of number play with the band names and stuff. It's so funny. She's another person um, who is just like a comically outsized asshole to Bo. Like there's no reason for him to be for her to be as rude to him as she is. It's along the lines of Richard Kind. This is my favorite section of the the movie. It's my second favorite. I love the first time I saw this it like I especially when she gets him high. Yeah. And like insists. Oh my god. And oh my god, that line where he's like he's like, What is this? And she said, It's three it's things. Three things. <laughs> but like teenagers are fucking terrible. You did that to like me once. Steven, you did that to me once. I did. And I sent you straight to the Phantom Zone. I do um, the the experience he had is the experience I had. I literally wrote down what's in it? It's three things. Phantom Zone exclamation point in my notes. <laughs> yes. I went straight um, to the Phantom te- Zone. Like Zoomers are fucking scary to me. You know, like do you, do you know, do you, do you yes. know that? Do you know that feeling of just like how like like a younger generation, if you think about it too hard and you're not actually interacting with them, they can seem so like intimidating and like petulant. Like they're here to replace this, us. That's that's this movie's stance on Zoomers, and I think it's awesome because it turns the experience of having to try to like behave around and relate to this young girl into horror. Yes, yeah. like oh, she's so as good. awful as she could possibly be, and then some. And they're like, like her and her friend, they're always on their phones. They're always mm-hmm. filming him with their phones, and we never know why or yeah. what they're gonna do with it. Well, for potential blackmail, because they're always saying, like, we're going to tell people that you, like, grabbed us by the hair and assaulted yeah, us. Yeah, but there, there's there's more to it than that. Like, yeah, that's the obvious threat, but they're just, like, always filming him. <laughs> like, why? Stop. Yeah, that stuff is so good. The entire family is, like, hilariously bad vibes. I mean, Amy Ryan and Nathan Lane seem cheery at first, but almost uh, certainly ominously cheery from the start. They have a son who died right oh god died in, that in was, the military that was so in good caracas yeah <laughs> they've got a shrine set up for him and they have like a shrine it's like the shrine is like in the dining room and there's a plaque that says something like never goodbye always see you later yeah <laughs> like yeah it's just like a standard like piece of word art that they put up to memorialize <laughs> their son <laughs> Nathan Lane is like a renowned surgeon, at least we're led to believe. And he and Amy Ryan and the daughter are popping pills left and right, too. (laughs) They take their pills with dinner. So, you know, to varying effects, it seems to make the daughter even more of an asshole. And it kind of chills them out so they can tolerate each other. And then they have a military vet who served with their son who's living on the property. (laughs) Jeeves. His name is Jeeves. (laughs) Who is prone to just like 
the most extreme psychotic panic attacks slash anger attacks possible at any given moment. Yeah. And who just it all clearly wants to kill Bo as soon as he arrives. And everyone's mm-hmm. like, oh, no, he loves you. <laughs> he's like an he's like a human attack dog. I don't think he says a single word. He's just like the crazy dog who's waiting for its owner to like let it off the leash, basically. Mm-hmm. Oh. And he gets visualized as like an attack or like a scary dog during the animated sequence. Too. Oh yeah. Like I think that's, I think that's supposed to refer to him and uh, I, that creeped me the hell out mm-hmm. too. But yeah, this all bottoms out because <laughs> the family has been maintaining their dead son's bedroom. This, and this, it's so funny even describing this. Cause it's like, this shouldn't even be funny. Like this is some fucked up shit that like real people go through, but there's still some, yeah. just something about the tone of it and the, the absurdity, the degree to which this is all heightened, that it's just like, yes, this is absolutely hilarious. Like, they've been keeping the dead son's bedroom. The daughter is pissed about it because she thinks they should just be putting Bo there, but she very passive-aggressively tells them, like, yeah, sure, like, stay in my room. And she ends up trying to, like, basically vandalize the dead brother's room with a couple of cans of paint, like, starts painting Bo's name on the wall. And then she asks Bo to drink paint with her, which Mm -hmm. he refuses. And she, like, guzzles paint. And there's this, I mean, again, talk about horror. All of a sudden, we pivot into horror because Amy Ryan is, like, trying to give CPR to, like, this dead girl. And she's got blue paint all over her mouth. And the squelching noises, I'll never forget it. She's trying to give the kid CPR when she's already dead. And it's, again, like, such a, I mean, I, I, I actually am experiencing chills just thinking about this moment because it's such a bizarre, singular hybrid of horror and comedy which are two things that we often are like fuck another horror comedy but like great great moment it is horrifying and it's also bizarrely funny at the same time self-harm has never been so hilarious (laughs) like both times i've seen that scene i've been conflicted in that same way of like i I can handle an edgy sense of humor and i have a very dark sense of humor myself but both times i thought like i cannot believe i'm laughing right now yeah i need to go like shot by shot through that sequence to figure out how he got me uh just rolling with laughter during something that is objectively like sad and terrifying it's just my cup of tea and and like i don't know i feel like the issue with horror comedies is like they don't they they pull their punch on the scary thing Mm-hmm. To give yeah. you a funny thing. And yeah. this is like, no, we're just going to make the situation so comic, but then we're going to shoot the actual horror. Right. <laughs> well, and I think, again, like the Rosetta Stone to all this is is that it's about anxiety. Like you've seen enough of this at this point to get that this is probably some weird, like subjective experience Bo's having. Like this probably isn't all happening for real. Like, uh, much of it couldn't happen for real. Yeah, I don't know. I've said this too many times already, but it's that reducing it, reducing the anxiety to absurdity that makes it both feel very real, very visceral, but also laughable. It's it's unique. I've never seen anything that like tone wise like this. Well, and there's a meta level to it as well that we can probably have some fun discussing, which is like, okay, how much of this is. Bo's subjective warped perception of what's going on and how much of it is potentially or has been potentially manufactured for him by Mm. his mother. Mm. Mm. I think it's all real. I don't think it follows logic, but I think it's all real. I think it's just, it's all, it's all manifestation. It's of, of 
there's no no distinction between his subjective experience and the objective reality of this movie. Well, but his fear and anxiety themselves, I think, are manufactured by his mother. Well, oh yeah, of like course. the way he perceives the world is a result of her influence. I, I'm just trying to say, I don't think it's a matter of like, oh, what's really happening in the world right. of this movie and what's what's in his anxiety. It's just it's it's one reality. And it's anxiety. <laughs> yeah. What? Well, yeah. What matters is how he experiences it. What? What is? What might be interesting to parse out? Well, I thought it would be, but I, it didn't really lead me anywhere. In the second viewing, is like there may very well actually be a conspiracy here that his mother has laid out for him. That these people really are employees and, uh, of hers, and that she has this. This has all been sort of a, a punishment for him along the way that she's designed in some, some ways. I dis I disagree. <laughs> oh, you, you disagree. Well, I, I'm, I'm not saying that that's true, but it's hinted that it might be. Yeah, that comes up. But I, cause I, when that came up, I was like, are they pulling a, is this a, the game situation right now? It's, it's not, I nah. think it's like, we, as the audience get the best of both worlds. And that even if that isn't true, it doesn't matter because Bo experiences what he experiences in the way that he believes he does. Mm-hmm. Um, and whether or not his mom was like planting all, him in all of these situations, you know, who can say for sure? But he seems to believe in the end that that was the case, too. Well, and it's so surreal. There's so much here that like very literally, like physically, realistically could not happen mm-hmm. like, that no one could actually engineer. Well, that's the end of him at the house, and then we go from that the the <laughs> well, high of that. Amy Ryan orders Jeeves to quote rip him apart, and so he flees, mm-hmm, right. <laughs> right. which and is he has, hilarious. He has a monitor on his ankle too, so they can track yeah. him, and essentially, it can probably be detonated at some point. I loved that line reading. Jeeves, rip him apart. <laughs> so good, but yeah, then when you get to the theater. And, and yeah, and it's like, it's almost like a renaissance fair, but not really. It's, it is like kind of like a commune, but not really these traveling artists and performers who just put these, like put on Shakespeare in the park in the middle of the woods, uh, to an audience apparently of them, of, of their own. They do say that like, oh, we stop in towns and we sell things and stuff, but it looks like everybody there is part of the community. Well, they say we like to blur the lines between audience and uh, theater goers, which was also hilarious to me. Again, coming from somebody who works in entertainment industry, like I fucking hate any theater that does that. Like, no, don't blur the lines. I don't want to be part of this. Like, give me give me theater. (laughs) Don't make me part of it. Damn. Um, He meets a kind, young, pregnant lady who he seems to project a lot of affection onto. He's given a costume to participate. And that was also a hilarious bit to me where the guy holds up, like the, the costumer holds up two outfits that are both like essentially the same shade of like off white. And he's like, Oh, I think this one would go really well with your eyes, but this one's my, he's like, it's so funny. Like there's no color. There's nothing notable about these outfits. And then we just have a very surreal sequence in which Bo's watching the stage play and imagines himself as the hero of the stage play. Yeah. 
imagines a whole life story for himself, which may or may not be actually happening, in which he becomes a farmer and falls in love and has three sons and gets washed away by a storm. I love this shit because I had the same feeling the first time I saw it, but the second time it was even funnier to me. It's, like, falsely profound in a way Mm. that I found some, like, poetry and theater to be. To the degree that now, like, I'm seeing this now, like, post the big conversation we're having about AI, and it feels like this entire play was written by a chatbot. Mm. It's so (laughs) ridiculously, everything is like, like, oh, it sounds poetic, but if you were to read it on the page, it would just be bullshit. Um, (laughs) And it's, like, completely nonsensical and, like, intuitive. But on the same level, it's kind of beautiful, because Bo, I think, he kind of discovers art. And discovers, like, oh, like, he discovers, like, storytelling and, like, stepping outside of yourself and outside of your, the chaos of your daily life and, like, learning to see yourself reflected in art or maybe even creating art. It's, Mm. like, this wonderful little respite for him that's Mm. also surreal and unnerving because he seems to, like, get so immersed in it that he truly believes he had three beautiful boys, which I think is the name of the play. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> it's it's a trip man uh, yeah trip. i i struggled to understand the significance of this i said before i got bogged down in it but honestly with that reading steven i kind of want to go back and revisit it because um yeah i i think i i i bought into weirdly the 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 profound tone it doesn't feel funny it doesn't like nod quite as much as really any other segment in the thing it feels yeah, there, there's a sense of like profundity to it. And I wasn't really getting what I was supposed to take away from it, especially because it goes on for quite a while. But um, no, I, I think that read makes sense and fits more with the tone of the film. It's definitely jarring and it does drag no matter how you read it. But I found with that reading the second time through, it was a lot more entertaining mm-hmm. and seemed to go by a little faster. And of course, it's beautiful and there's lots of cool practical set stuff that reminded me of like Baron Munchausen or something. Mm. And there's lots of cool, like squiggly hand-drawn animation Beautiful, yeah. going on. Um, but I think this is like him kind of making fun of like focus features movies <laughs> in a way. <laughs> Just kind of like the, the bland, like faux, faux indie, faux profound stuff. But Bo's life has been so sheltered and so like riddled with like the daily anxieties of living in hell that it's profound for him, and he he really uh, maybe latches onto it a little too hard. Right. Well, that, and oh, it, there's this life, like this fantasy of a life that I might have that I can escape to and not have to think about my mom. Like I'm a father now, and I have children. Yeah, and it fits into the anxiety narrative well too, because he feels safe in this community. I think maybe for the first time in the movie, there's a feeling of some kind of safety and security. People are warm to him. Mm -hmm. They encourage him to be part of this thing. And he either imagines or kind of his magical realism into this story and seems to be really caught up in it, including this sort of like beautiful and somewhat tragic ending where like he's finally reunited with his like sons after a whole lot of hardships (laughs) And then, like, realizes that he couldn't possibly have fathered the sons because, again, he's not able to have sex because he might <laughs> die from having sex. And then it all kind of falls apart at that point. So it it does kind of work on the anxiety level, again, in the sense of that even the, like, 
fantasy world that he's been encouraged to indulge in where like he lives a normal life and has a family and has this sort of idyllic existence and is then reunited with his sons after a bad thing happens is still punctured by this fear of having sex and suddenly he gets brought back to earth by this ridiculous anxiety that he has it's it is kind of funny it it does kind of achieve the comic beats of the earlier segments too in the sense that like yeah, that 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 fantasy gets punctured, like not only by that realization, but like Jeeves shows up, yeah, <laughs> and just blows everything to hell. It's and so one of funny. the biggest laughs for me is when the guy in the butterfly costume grabs the gun out of that yeah. little like swirly yeah. painted thing. I don't even know what that was, if it's a speaker or whatever. And you realize, like, oh, like he might think this has been a safe space all along, but like these people are into some shady shit. Yeah. Even this like (laughs) idyllic theater community is still prepared for violence for war, essentially. Yeah. (laughs) He also, I don't know if it's important or not, but he also meets a man who claims to know his father and that his father's alive. Oh yeah. Before all the violence breaks out. Yeah. Yes. He gets exploded in a pretty hilarious and surprising fashion. Jeeves kills himself by falling on his own machine gun, which just <laughs> well, continues. Well, does he kill himself? Well, well I mean, does not he? in the sense of, like, again. suicide. Well, yeah, true, but appears to be killed by falling on yeah. his own machine gun, which continues to fire into his, like, chest slash shoulder as he lies on the ground. And then he presses the incapacitate <laughs> button on his phone for Bo's monitor, which just... Gives him an electric jolt and then like fizzles out in a cloud oh of smoke instead of exploding. Honestly, I'm loving this movie so much more as I'm like talking about slash reliving it. And I already liked it. It's kind of my biggest, maybe my biggest complaint. I don't know if it's a complaint about this movie, but it's a reason that I that I don't think I'll ever revisit it again. Is it has the feeling of somebody somebody telling you about their dream, mm. and they he does it very very well. But, like, we don't generally get very much from hearing people describe their weird dreams. It's more interesting for the teller than the audience. So I disagree with that. I think you've said that before. I think that's more a matter of personal taste. I actually like hearing about people's dreams. They're pretty, it's, if if it's an interesting dream, at least, you know, and I, at least, usually the ones people share with me do tend to be interesting. But I like hearing about dreams. I usually don't like hearing about dreams. uh, But the reason I don't like hearing about dreams is because they're, they're very, arbitrary and and in this like it's a film it's not arbitrary somebody made these decisions and and shot these things for a reason although i mean the payoff isn't quite there so it does feel arbitrary in that sense because you get to the end and you're like well what the hell what was that all supposed to mean I saw a, a review I liked, I think, on Letterboxd that said something like, you either plan to skydive and you have a parachute or you ju- just jump out of a plane. And 99% of the experience is the same. <laughs> and they, they said that Bo is afraid is basically just jumping out without a parachute. And oh, it, I like and, that. And it feels like something profound and like it's going to pay off with something. And then it just hits the ground. I actually love the ending, but we're about to get to that, I think. All right. Until that point, it seems like it's, it's until that point, it's indistinguishable from a perfect film. <laughs> hmm. Yeah. So then I think uh, he ends up at mom's house. And the funeral's already over. Not quite in time to make the funeral, but she's lying in state, headless. <laughs> Which, Which I can't really funny. At, yeah. And it's just, I don't know how, 
But like, if you screen grab that, you know it's an Ari Aster movie. There's something yeah. just so it's staged, but like not in a Wes Anderson kind of way where everything is like symmetrical and sanitized, and yet it still is just like blurring the lines between. It's a simple image, but it blurs the lines between reality and surreality in such a fucking hilarious and creepy way. Well, and also, mm-hmm. what is it with this man and beheadings? He loves a fucking beheading. Well, yeah. he loves. I think he would probably like to behead his own mother. Like, let's not even Oof. joke about, let's not joke around. Like he says he has a fine relationship with her, but I doubt it. If you look at the three films he's put out so far. Well, and look, that is the other level on which this really hit me and I'm not going to get deep into it, but I've had an intense yeah, conflict with my parents, particularly my mother this summer. And this, uh, yeah, this hit hard on that level as well. Yeah, so I mean, let, let, let's get into it because we find out. Uh, so, uh, all right, I guess we got to talk about how uh, Elaine, his his tween crush, shows mm-hmm. up again. She's now an adult woman about his age, played by Parker Posey, my queen. I was so excited to see her. I hadn't seen her in so long. I have to interject really briefly. Parker Posey, I knew she was in this movie. She did some interviews for it. A huge part of this movie and may have colored my first viewing was waiting to find out how Parker Posey was going to show up and what mm. she was going to do. And goddamn, did she deliver? <laughs> yes. Yeah. She shows up and, and this is kind of the part where the movie starts to lose me because it's, it's, it's one of those, you know, like feels very unearned romances, but whatever uh, they, they have sex and, it doesn't kill Joaquin Phoenix. And so the weight of the world is off his shoulders. There's just one problem, which is that it kills Parker Posey for some (laughs) reason, which I knew was coming. Like the whole time he's like monologuing to her about, Oh my God, I thought I was going to die. And he's not making eye contact. She's not moving, not responding. I'm like, Oh, she's absolutely dead. Like I knew that for a long time before they actually cut to that reaction shot. But the reaction shot was so fucking worth it. Like just her frozen with bloodshot eyes, still naked <laughs> on top of him was the amazing. Rictus of orgasm. Yeah. And horror is so good. And they, I, the first time I saw this, I thought it was so funny when she gets carried. Yes. Away. And they actually yeah. made, I was like, how did they do that? Well, it's so simple, but they did it so well. They just made a full body cast of her. Yeah, because yeah. she's already <laughs> stiff, but like still has her hands down by her crotch. It's mm. it's yeah. just unforgettable imagery. But no, turns out mom dead. saw the whole thing. Yeah, mom's not dead. Mom's and hanging out in the bathroom, watching the sex, watching everything, and comes out and. An hour of mom drama ensues. <laughs> Is it that long? No, it's, it's not, that not long. quite that long. No, not at that point. I, I, I can I still have it on my thing. I can I can clock it here, uh, but it's 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 long and um, it's a whole chapter of the movie. For it's sure. a long monologue, and she destroys. Patty Lapone is fucking terrifying and so good. It's hard for me to break it down. It's hard for me to really say what it amounts to. But yeah, I mean, this movie is fundamentally about something to do with your relationship with your mother. Oh my God. I forgot the second funniest line in the movie for me is when Joaquin finally comes (laughs) and uh, Parker Posey hasn't yet. And she's like, Oh my God, (laughs) I felt that you just blasted through that bag. I died. That was so good. Oh my god. Yeah, I was frozen in that moment. 
All right. So it's it's about 35 minutes from the end. It, it was it was that. also funny and terrifying to me that like as she was touching herself to get herself to come, she she just keeps saying, "Don't move. Don't move. Don't move," which was like such a terrifying but the also thing funny to thing hear. to say. <laughs> While they're listening to fucking Mariah Carey. Oh, the, yes. When she starts <laughs> over on her phone partway through having sex because like it's the mo- the moment was ruined, but she needs to start always be my baby over again. And, and mom goes on a long monologue throughout the house about how he's always been a terrible son. He's never been able to get, she's given him so much love. He's never able to return it, you know, even, even close to the amount that she deserves. She bought him the same Bette Midler CD for Christmas. twice. <laughs> he pretended to get lucky. He does all the, she, she's got video footage of all the things that like normal teenagers do that like upset her. Like he, he pretends to hide at the mall and she like falls and hurts her ankle. His, he has his friends over and they pressure him into going through her underwear and they take some, you know, like it's, just like she goes through basically just like reads him the riot act about everything he's ever done and mostly in his childhood that 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 has you know rubbed her the wrong way that she's undeserving of and she's been colluding with his therapist to get like yes. dirt on him and and subtly destabilize him and of course faked her death like we haven't mentioned that she faked her death to yeah. like get him out there or destabilize him further i don't know yeah and they, all the therapy sessions have been recorded and she's got her favorite session that they play back and yeah. he's trying to explain like this is what i was really trying to say and you know he's he's basically left without any kind of defense yeah for the rest of the movie i mean yeah and all this is just it's well acted but i just didn't i wasn't picking up what it was putting down i didn't understand what any of it meant it was just kind of melodrama for its own sake for me and didn't give me a lot of insight into what this movie is about if anything what's this movie about yeah i, I, I already think, gave my grand well, unifying theory of it before the spoiler room so i won't repeat myself i I'm not understating this. I have literally watched, at this point, hours of Ari Aster talking about this movie in interviews and at festival Q&As. And what's frustrating but also kind of funny is that he generally refuses to answer most questions and says, I don't know how to answer that. (laughs) Because, and then eventually he's quoted as saying, stop trying to figure it out. It's dumb. (laughs) Like, I don't think there's anything to this that isn't personal to him but also i think it's like the ultimate edgelord movie he's just trying to make a funny fucked up movie where fucked up things happen and see how far you'll go along with it and there may be some kernels of truth about like mother-son relationships in it but i think it is like very surface level i think this is a movie that is trying to get you to feel as deeply as possible guilt and anxiety Hmm. Just in a cinematic sense. I, I think it is just like almost a tone poem about anxiety and guilt. And it works for most of the movie on that level. Yeah, I would be I would give him a little more credit. I feel like maybe maybe he doesn't have intentions to, you know, have this be about something, but he's deliberately putting a bunch of shit on paper and then on film and hoping as part of a therapeutic process that a truth emerges from it. And once you look at it, you can, you can find something 
that's that's personal uh not only to him but to you maybe i don't know <laughs> i mean it's funny chris because normally i'm like normally we're kind of split two ways where i'm on your side and that there's there are themes here and there are ideas and maybe they weren't properly expressed or fully developed but there was an intention and i mean maybe he's just being a troll but he's been on record many many times saying yeah there's not really an intention here this is just a this is just a ride this is just a feel bad movie you know don't don't think too hard about it well then that's 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 frustrating but if he's <laughs> telling the tr- if he's telling the truth it's even more frustrating if he's just trolling i don't really know what motivation he would have to do that i mean ostensibly you do q and a's and you do the press circuit to try and sell your movie i mean if he's really do if he's trolling around then it's a fuck around and find out situation when people don't give him any more money to make movies because he made a three-hour movie that was deliberately uh dumb in his words i think it was i mean it seems like he was very influenced by weirdly like paul thomas anderson Oh God! I said the first thing I said. I watched this with my sister, and and she she and I have watched some uh, Paul Thomas Anderson movies before. And this movie reminded mm-hmm. me a lot of Punch Drunk Love, actually, hundred yes, percent. Um, but I, as soon as the credits came on, I said, "I'm never talking shit about Paul Thomas Anderson again." <laughs> <laughs> so there is a very heavy Punch Drunk Love, and like Paul Thomas Anderson is like bafflingly on record as saying that like he loves Billy Madison and Happy Gilmore. They're like perfect comedies, and I would I would wager that Ari Aster is as big of a fan of that kind of broad comedy, but also the way that Anderson filtered that through anxiety for Punch Drunk Love. Um, but it all feels like more surface level and like <sighs> stylistic than than anything truly deep. I I don't it think is. it's dumb. I think that's him being flippant. Um, but I don't think there's necessarily much more to it than, yeah, again, just kind of taking the assignment of how deep can you go with intrusive thoughts and surely getting to your mother's funeral, not only late, wounded, bedraggled, pursued by a million antagonists, whatever, but also getting there and finding out that the entire funeral was a ruse. Her death was faked exclusively to fuck with you. There's the good version of you in her attic, along with your father, which is a gigantic anthropomorphic penis. Like, I I mean, again, I I just think it's continuing the same assignment that he's followed for the entire movie, which is how much deeper can we go with this guy's comical levels of fear and paranoia and Mm -hmm. it delivers intensely on that level for me well if it delivers then it's then it's deep enough right but for a three-hour movie it's like oh my god i can't believe we're getting and i enjoyed that part of the movie i thought it was surprising and strange but like it's literally just a dick joke it's literally just like i think i think the mom is just saying all right well i've been trying to hold this from you forever but your dad was a dick and it turns out he was literally just a giant piece <laughs> like it's that is some adam sandler <laughs> shit and, but i admire him for being like you know what we're doing it guys yeah. we're doing it and we're going to build a practical 15 foot effect it is gruesome when jeeves shows up like unharmed from <laughs> falling on his gun earlier and starts stabbing at the balls and cum is coming out of them and blood like i admire it but like at that point you're really testing my patience like i want something a little more profound to cling to 
Yeah, I don't know. It's hard, and yeah, I think I think he's probably being flippant when he says it's not about anything. It's just dumb. And this is the same guy who says Midsummer is a comedy. Yeah, dude, I didn't want to bring that up, so. but I also thought it yes, a hundred percent. Yeah. Well, he's a hundred percent a troll, but that alone gives me pause because, like, I don't expect directors to explain their work, and I prefer creators who have funny and interesting ways to subvert those types of questions. But that's literally all he's ever done. And this movie made me think, like, maybe the well has run dry and this is as long as he can play the charade. I don't want him to keep, I don't want him to stop being his wild ass, cruel self with his films, but I want him to grow up a little bit. Just a little tiny bit, you know? Well, if we see him at Motor City Nightmares, we can ask him about it. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I'm sure he'll give us a more honest and sincere answer. God, I don't know. He seems like he. I. I wouldn't want to be in a room with that. This was guy. that he was my joke. Guys. I was. I was yeah, not being I mean, honest or sincere myself with that comment. He, so I mean, the kind of the climax of this whole thing with mom is he. He kind of uh, stands up for himself and loses the the murmuring and uh, damn near strangles her to death. Does strangle her to death? As kind of as far as the scene's concerned, because he stops, but then she kind of keels over and smashes through a aquarium or a terrarium or something anyway well and it's clear he already like pretty seriously damaged her windpipe you see a horrifying image of her like the windpipe being completely like dislocated Mm -hmm. then we get the hilarious shot of him with that rictus of like horror on his face as he walks across the yard (laughs) toward Mm -hmm. the boat he He gets gets in in a boat boat, (laughs) travels across the ocean like the truman show uh, goes into a cave, emerges in a giant. It's like the Colosseum when they used to flood it with water and have naval battles in it. Yeah. He's in this it's giant an arena. arena, and and he's being put on trial by Richard Kind, who has only been heard in voice form thus far. He's being put on trial, and so now I'm like, okay, I get it. It's it's you guys. You guys have declined my repeated invitations to come over and have five beers and listen to Pink Floyd The Wall on the <laughs> Sonos. But if you did, you would understand this scene cuz I get it. I'm like, all right, it's it's the trial. It's all It's the, Kafka. It's it's all the it's 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 the whole movie has been his anxieties and stuff and now his ultimate anxiety is he's being put on trial for the his his antisocial attitude towards his mother and i guess you know i spent a lot of this movie thinking bo is afraid what is bo afraid of do you, do you guys have an opinion on what bo is afraid of or you think he, he i guess patrick everything. You, you would say it's just a general thing yeah man, everything I think everything i feel like the central problem of the movie is bo wants permission to either break free of his mother or to hate his mother. He's afraid of not loving his mother enough in the way he's supposed to, I think. Well, and that comes up in the trial because she says something like, basically, like he always has the worst impulses, at least as far as she's concerned, but he always takes the most passive way toward achieving the outcome that he wants. Mm -hmm. And he's done that throughout his entire life, according to her. 
And then, and there's no his, defense. His his defense is a one eight hundred call lawyer guy who's yeah. like meekly is, muttering from the other side of the arena. Yeah, like his his. Uh, oh, it's such great like nightmare shit. Like Richard Kind's voice is just booming across this arena. The audience is just in Richard Kind's like eating out of his hand. And uh, Bo's defense. I don't think you can even see his like defense lawyer. And his there's a sign over him that says defense and then underneath 1-800-DEFENSE but spelled D-E-F-E-N-C-E and I don't know why but that was very funny to me too and and you can barely hear him you can barely hear the defense lawyer and then I mean the, the question is is Bo ever going to reconcile this is he ever going to become a man is he ever going to stand up is he ever going to be able to free himself of his mother no his boat capsizes and he drowns well first his feet are stuck to the boat he's trying to literally stand up for himself in the boat and then he can't Mm. move his feet are stuck to the boat and then i think essentially he falls over and is and is stuck to the boat and has no way of writing it because he's stuck to the boat and so he (laughs) drowns as the credits roll well the boat like comically caps it does like like there's like an explosion and then and then it's over and it's like, oh, okay, really? That's that's what we spent three hours. And I to. thought it was a fake ending. Mm. I did too. Which I, 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 I was, because I remember, it was in my back of my brain. Everything, everywhere, all at once has a fake ending, right? Yeah. Yeah, I, I heard, heard that. I haven't seen that movie yet, but I like knew that there was some movie that came out that had fake credits or something. And I was like oh, this has to be the movie with fake credits because this is just such an abrupt and unsatisfying ending to this thing. But that's the ending. It's real. I loved it. I actually kind (laughs) of thought it was perfect and it was very satisfying to me because again, it's like, all right, you've gone through all this. And again, it's it's the question, how much further can we take this? Put you on trial, nightmare trial. Everyone hates you. Your defense lawyer is worthless. The entire crowd is like, you suck, you lose. And also you can't get out of this boat and now you drown. Like it's it's just the perfect the perfect nightmare that just keeps descending into further and further levels of hell to me. That makes sense. And I, I like I like your your read on all that. I, yeah, I was looking for something bigger, but I'm probably the fool. I think I was a fool too, but I mean, like, I can't think of a better way to wrap this up given what happens for those three hours leading up to it. I just, I didn't find it satisfying, but like, is it really supposed to be all that satisfying? Yeah, at that point. <laughs> you're not you're not expecting this character to grow at any point. No, there's, you know? I mean, there's a moment where he's strangling his mom where you're like, okay, maybe something's changing here. But then he immediately starts backpedaling on it and it becomes clear that this is never going to go away. Yeah. So... His life is forfeit. Yeah. Damn. Guys, can I tell you one? I I feel like we're almost at the end of our own nightmare journey here, but can I tell you one more thing? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, of course. I also have a heart murmur. Really? Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Little, this was, this one was a little freaky, even though it was weirdly therapeutic for me in some ways. I think it's also going to give me some fresh anxieties that I'm really not looking forward to. So fucking thanks, Ari. That's fascinating. Wow. You're, you're welcome. You're welcome. Steven, I, did I, you did you notice on your rewatch that like one of the first things you see is like a mother chasing her kid away who's playing with a boat in the fountain and then the boat capsizes? Oh. Actually, I didn't. Yeah. It's like the it's like one of the it's like the second thing you see once he leaves the therapist's office. Um Wow. Oh, well, you see a yeah. lot of things when he leaves the therapist's office. Mm-hmm. Too. It's you like do. hard to 
focus on what's happening. There's like a, oh my God, there's another scene where I was like, I can't believe I'm laughing at this. Where like he encounters a crowd of people that are filming a guy that's about to kill himself. Yeah. And they're all like egging him. Yeah. Oh, that's hilarious. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I don't know. I, I, it is something that I think warrants a second viewing to just catch little Easter eggs and things like that and moments like that. But it's hard for me to imagine rewatching this within the next five years. I could see myself revisiting it after a while on a like lazy Sunday afternoon when I have like the like perfect person to show it to because I feel like there's a specific type of person who's going to be geared to like really vibe with this. So I I, I could I could see myself revisiting it. It's just once I get once I start getting sweaty in my chair, like I need <laughs> I need a better paced movie to f- finish the last hour. I wrote in my notes, this movie is designed for you to use to prank your enemies. And I will also add that I was looking forward to revisiting it for this assignment out of all the A24 horror movies I could have chosen because I thought, you know what? This is the one that I really want to watch stoned and see if it hits me any different. And I will say it was probably more fun to watch that way, but I also broke it into, I think, three chunks. Oh, you would have to. I would fall asleep. For I would, sure. yeah, yeah. I, I I had to, but I was like, you know what? I want to see if like if the anxiety hits me any worse. Mm. And I really put myself out there for this one, and, and you know, it, it, it still wasn't quite as rewarding as I as I expected it to be. So I think this is a movie that like I'm probably in the minority. I mean, very few people saw this to begin with. I feel like I'm in like a cult for only having watched it twice. <laughs> But I feel like this is a movie that I couldn't imagine under other circumstances anybody watching more than like once a decade. <laughs> yeah. You know, you, you go long enough, kind of like, I don't know, Watchmen is like that for me, where like every oh. few years I'm like, it couldn't have been as bad as I thought it was. <laughs> it's so, it's such a fascinating thing that it even happened. I'm gonna, I'm gonna get high and watch it. I, I like yeah, Watchmen. Yeah, me too. I know you. No, oh, <laughs> wait, that was poorly timed. I want to. <laughs> just clarify that my me too was not aimed at i also like watchmen but at that occasionally i have the perverse desire to rewatch it you guys can come over anytime you want to watch watchmen mm, that's okay all right so uh that was bo's afraid that's the movie we don't know what we're watching next but we expect you to chime in you're gonna pick for us you can pick any a24 movie it doesn't have to be a horror movie. We'll accept any genre if you if you donate enough money. We're gonna we're gonna be sticking to horror for this new mission during the strike, but to raise money for hardworking folks out there, you can pick whatever the fuck you want, as long as it's A twenty four. All right. Well, it's been nice chatting with you. I'm excited for what surprises await us next uh, episode, my dudes, for every A twenty four movie on Blu ray. I've been Steven. I'm Chris. I'm Patrick. Uh, Bye-bye.